welcome to Insight for Impact, the podcast from SQW featuring conversations with experts on the issues that matter in economic and social development. Welcome back to Insight for Impact, the SQW podcast. I'm Joe Duggett, a director of SQW, and for our first podcast of the year, we're going to look ahead to 2023. Whilst we're not going to be making any specific and potentially heroic predictions, apart from maybe England winning back the Ashes this summer, we'll consider the key policy developments, drivers or events that we should be watching out for in 2023 across a range of policy domains and the implications of this for those involved in economic and social development. The backdrop to these discussions is one of considerable economic uncertainty for the UK, the prospects of a potential recession, and what is still a new administration in Westminster with an evolving policy agenda, albeit with the general election now firmly in sight. There are also ongoing constitutional debates across the UK's nations and regions, and a fragile international landscape, alongside the ongoing societal and economic challenges including net zero, levelling up, and productivity. In this context, as we enter the new year, issues related to wages, employment conditions, the cost of living and industrial relations, particularly in the public sector, are at the forefront of the national conversation. So it seems a sensible place to start. I'll look ahead to 2023 with Graham Tom, who is an expert on employment and skills. Graham, welcome to the podcast. As we move into 2023, what do you see as the key drivers and contexts in relation to employment and skills? I think looking quickly back into last year, as, as we sit, you've kind of got three big groups of issues which all interlink with each other. And actually, they're all quite unusual for what we've seen recently. So the first one, I guess, is strikes, which we're on a scale we haven't seen for a good number of years, and wage pressures driven by cost of living in part. Number two, running through last year, very high historic level of vacancies, public and private sector, which doubtless creates pressure on wages, reinforcing point one. And number three, kind of reinforcing them again in in a very different way and picking up more mainstream activity, I guess, over the last month or two, is the rise in economic inactivity amongst people who normally would have been in work, but appear to not be working and importantly, not be looking to work at this point in time. So you have a reduced pool of labour to do the jobs that are available at a time when you have a lot of vacancies and therefore actually quite a lot of stress around the labour market is what we've seen last year. And as we move into 2023, what might change? How do you think 2023 might be different? It's going to be really interesting. um, Who knows how the strikes will play out? I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that. So let's not go into that in much detail. I guess in the economic context, People expect the economy to slow down, move into recession, flatline. If, um, and that, I guess, will take the pressure off the recruitment to some extent. So normally in recessions, employment moves late, but it will turn down. Unemployment would normally go up. Bank of England, OBR, think unemployment will go up. And I guess coming back to the economic inactivity issue, it's interesting that there are two main groups that have driven that increase. And the increase is quite big. The increase is about 550,000 since COVID hit. So it's a big number of people who you would have thought working or not. And they're really in two groups. They're in 16 to 24-year-olds and they're in over 50s. And there's a sort of working hypothesis that some of these people may be driven back into work. 
by pressures of pay, and that might push them back into work. And there's another hypothesis probably backed up more in the data that actually a big cause of that is people who are long-term sick and actually therefore are unable to work. Mental health issues amongst young people being really important in that. Um, but importantly, point, final point on this, maybe let you jump in, is about one in five of those people who are economically active say they would actually want to work. They're not looking for work, but they would want to work. So in policy terms, the question I think becomes, what can happen to help those people who want back into work come back into work? I think the, the government have announced potentially, uh, is it a mid, mid-life MOT or similar um, for, for over 50s to, to support that? Yeah, it's interesting how these things move from the policy circles and the practitioners we talk to into the mainstream. And there's been a set of things, both from the government, as you say, about MOTs, um, but also Labour Party, not surprisingly, picking up and talking about having careers people embedded with health services. From some of the work we've done, we've seen employment programmes seek to improve people's health, have mental health embedded within them. And efforts to do that seem to have worked. Um, but also the challenge of how do you reach these people who are out of work, who might not actually be very engaged with mainstream services, but want to move back. So I think there will be quite a lot more in that space over the next 12 months and so. And are there particular policy developments or policy drivers, decisions that you think will either should or need to happen over the next 12 months? I guess that will be one. Is there, is there a specific initiative to tackle inactivity or series of initiatives more likely? And are they just employment or are they pensions? If people are wanting to work but not able to work, is it things like childcare? Can you do things around that? Yeah. How do you reach them? But in this sort of slightly bigger context to pan out a little bit, I guess, over the next couple of years, you've got some of the DWP mainstream employment contracts coming to an end. At the end of European funding, where we've seen a whole pile of RAP programs in local areas trying to reach hard to reach people and to upskill them. And we've got Shared Prosperity Fund and the employment skills part of Shared Prosperity Fund gets bigger. And I guess in, interesting in a slightly different policy agenda, where do um, combined authorities and mayors fit in this agenda? Is this a national program? Are they locally delivered? How far does that money move towards local authorities, combined authorities? Um, it would fit with some of the things that have gone there already as part of a devolution agenda. And depending how that's taken forward, um, I think it'd be a really interesting space to look at over the next 12, 24 months. Thanks, Graham. That provides us with a really useful insight into the key issues and prospects for the year ahead in relation to employment and skills and how they will be influenced by wider socioeconomic conditions and key policy decisions. Some of the issues and challenges are economy-wide and relevant across sectors, but we also need to recognise how employment, inactivity and labour market and skills capacity issues may also vary in different contexts. And one area where there are particular challenges and where we work widely is health and social care. Most of our work in this area is led by Lauren Roberts. Lauren, it's great to have you back on the podcast does what Graham covered have resonance for you? And as we start off 2023, how would you characterise the key drivers or contexts in health and social care? Hi, Joe. It's good to be back. And the first thing I would say is the major issue to start with is obviously the current demand pressure on health and social care. And that will come as absolutely no surprise to our listeners. You know, the issues have been widely reported and are occurring across the country 
And it's affecting millions of people who are seeking different types of access to NHS care, whether that be those trying to see a GP. And and that's received a lot of coverage despite a record 32 million GP appointments being carried out in October, according to NHS Digital. It's also affecting those calling for an ambulance or making their own way to A&E. And also those waiting for what's termed a routine or a scheduled operation, which some people have been waiting months or even years for. It's all generating headlines on an almost daily basis and obviously has really significant implications for patient care, for their outcomes and experiences, but also has implications for staff morale and retention, which we know is a real priority for the NHS. In late December, NHS England, for example, set out three key tasks or priorities for the coming year. The first is to recover core services and productivity post-pandemic to really try to tackle some of those waiting times that I've just talked about. Linked to that, it set out the priority of making progress on delivering the ambitions that were set out in the NHS long-term plan. They still hold. And the third key action is to continue transforming the NHS for the future. How does that intersect with and influence social care? Well, it's widely known that social care is experiencing its own issues, which are linked to and obviously have knock-on effects to to those in the NHS. So there are long-standing issues with social care, which are linked to funding arrangements, capacity within the system, and challenges with recruiting and retaining enough staff to As I've said, social care is undoubtedly linked to healthcare in terms of how it can support people's treatment and recovery. And in England, the integrated care systems and their associated boards and partnerships were formalised last summer with statutory responsibilities. So we might start to see some more joined up planning, funding and practice going forward. And we know there's a good deal of optimism about the potential of the new arrangements. So that's definitely something to watch out for. However, we know that taking a system-wide approach can be really difficult and the current challenges, I guess, seem to be exposing some of the cracks that persist between different service areas. Are there particular interventions or policies in place or anticipated as we look forward in the new year that might start to address or deal with some of those issues that we should be looking out for? Well, if you think about England in particular, there was the £500 million adult social care discharge fund allocation that was announced earlier last year. But that sits alongside a more recently announced additional £200 million for short-term care placements to enable discharge from hospital and a £50 million capital fund. And these are all intended to tackle the issues in the short term. The government also recently announced six new national discharge front runners for England, And they span different areas of the country, all the way from Sussex ICS up to the Humber and North Yorkshire ICS. And those sites are intended to trial different solutions to to tackle those delays around discharge and to help people to live independently in the community, really with a view to identifying and sharing good practice and innovation in that space. So there are entrenched issues, but there are also efforts underway to tackle them. And I'd expect to see more different examples of uh, good practice emerging with regards to care at home and in social care settings, but also in how hospitals manage those deemed medically fit for discharge. All of this, of course, is linked to longstanding workforce issues, however, 
We know there are workforce recruitment targets, which the government remains committed to, such as the target to recruit 50,000 extra nurses and 26,000 additional staff working in primary care. And there's a commitment to producing the workforce plan, which has long been called for. It obviously remains unclear exactly what the workforce plan might say, and that in itself is unlikely to lead to a resolution of demand and supply issues in the coming 12 months. But there are efforts underway to tackle some of the issues. And the government has added care workers to the shortage occupations list and made money available this year for adult social care international recruitment. So for the first part of 2023, at least, I think it's likely that we'll see ongoing challenges in the provision of timely care with continuing issues regarding staff, morale, retention. However, it's likely that this will sit alongside efforts to support further recruitment and innovation in the delivery models and hopefully with increasing system-wide perspectives being taken. Thanks, Lauren. You're listening to Insight for Impact with me, Joe Duggett. For the first podcast of the new year, I'm talking to several SUW experts across a range of policy domains about what we should be looking out for in 2023 in economic and social development. Joining me now is Jonathan Cook. Jonathan specialises in evaluation and policy analysis in the areas of research and innovation. Jonathan, we've heard from Graham and Lauren earlier in the podcast about how the current and potential economic context is influencing employment and skills and health and social care as we look forward into 2023. How does this economic context play in relation to research and innovation? Hi, Joe. Great to be on the podcast. The economic context poses some challenges for businesses wanting to invest in research and innovation. Inflation and the recessionary backdrop increase uncertainties around the returns on investment, and interest rates can make it more expensive if firms need to borrow to fund their innovation activities. On the flip side, there are opportunities for innovative companies with novel ideas that can help customers deal with the types of challenges that we're seeing at the moment, such as energy use, making this potentially a good time to develop new products or services. The current context has also brought into focus pressures for businesses to improve their productivity and resilience. And one way to achieve this is through investing in innovative practices. And then on the policy side, addressing societal challenges are increasingly a key part of the research and innovation priorities set by government. And the last few years have really highlighted the impact of some of these challenges, for instance, around healthcare and energy thereby further emphasising where innovation can really be used to help find solutions. So what might 2023 hold for research and innovation, Jonathan? Uh, A major addition to the uh, research and innovation landscape in 2023 is going to be the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, or ARIA, which launches operationally this year, having been originally announced by government back in 2021. The model for ARIA is based on the success of something called DARPA, which is an agency focused on advanced research in defence in the USA. And that's given us things like the internet, GPS and Apple's digital virtual assistant Siri. ARIA will fund high-risk projects where there are high chances of failure, but there are also potentially really high rewards. This is core to the UK's objective to be a global science superpower, and it will also help in getting more money into research and development. In principle, 
ARIA has been provided with a high level of flexibility and autonomy from government in its operation. What are some of the key aspects of this? Uh, There are three aspects that I'd point to, I think, on this. The first is that ARIA will be able to fund activities across research, development and innovation. So from the intersection of pure and applied research right through to finding commercial applications. This presumably will mean that ARIA can follow its money where it starts to see some potential success. The second thing is actually where it can, where and how it can use its money. So it'll have flexibility in how it deploys funding, for instance, grants, taking equity stakes and running things like grand prize competitions. Uh, And then the third thing is that it will have flexibility to identify the areas in which it invests. This is a a slight difference to DARPA, which is focused on defence. ARIA instead will be able to invest in a mix of areas. So we might expect that it will have programmes that are formed around different technology areas or themes, but it will have some freedoms to set these for itself. What does ARIA mean for the wider research and innovation landscape? That's a good question. It will be important, I think, to ensure clarity on scope between ARIA and other agencies and programmes operating in the landscape. It should, in theory, be trying to do different things. As I said, it's supposed to be at the higher risk end of the landscape. It also sits outside of UK research and innovation, which is responsible for the majority of public funding in this field, for instance, through research grants, funding to universities for knowledge exchange, and programmes that involve both research and industry, like the Strength in Places Fund and the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund programmes. In 2023, actually, we'll see some of these Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund programmes coming towards a close, and programme teams will be looking towards the next steps. This might include further research and technology development, but they'll also be looking for options in terms of adoption and diffusion of some of the technologies that they might have developed. You mentioned support for adoption and diffusion of innovation as an area of focus going forward into 2023. Can you say a bit more about this, Jonathan, and why you think it's an important issue for us to be thinking about? The UK has an excellent reputation for research, and there's a range of programmes that help to bridge to industry and that help innovative companies. But the, the angle around adoption and diffusion has been something that has perhaps received less attention in the UK. This actually takes us back to the context that we were talking about earlier and one of the underlying challenges for the UK, which is the the relatively low levels of productivity. Spreading innovations has a key role in addressing this challenge around productivity. The signs are that actually more emphasis is being put on adoption and diffusion. So, for example, the Farming Innovation Programme, which is a successor to the Transforming Food Production Programme, and is jointly run by UK Research and Innovation and DEFRA, there is an opportunity here in this programme and through the links to other support to help get technologies into the farming sector. There are other examples. Uh, The Innovation Adoption Accelerator in Professional Financial Services is due to be launched this year, which is supported by the Economic and Social Research Council and Innovate UK, and this will again help to support the adoption of technologies. And does the UK currently have the institutions required to support effectively the adoption and diffusion of innovation across the business base? There are institutions, uh, but they need to be appropriately resourced. 
So institutions need to be able to reach out and engage with businesses and other users of innovations and be able to support them effectively. They can also help in developing the skills of the workforce, which is critical for successful adoption and diffusion. And they can help to identify blockages that need addressing, like regulations or supply chain issues. There are institutions out there that can sort of fill these, fill these gaps. The catapults uh, are an example of this kind of institution. And these can play a key role here for their sectors or technology areas that they focus on. And also within the places that they're based, catapults tend to be located within regions and localities, and that can help them engage with the local business base. Thanks, Jonathan. With important links to the research and innovation agenda at a national level, which we have just discussed, for our final look ahead, I'm now joined by Christine Dole, who is an expert in local innovation ecosystems and place-based issues linked to what we might call broadly the levelling up agenda. Welcome back to the podcast, Christine. What do you see as the key issues and challenges as we move into 2023? Well, I think I'm probably going to say very similar um, things to some of my colleagues and, and going forth in this set of questions probably is quite tricky. But I think um, following on really from what Graham was saying, the whole set of issues around the recession, but at the simultaneous problem of, of major labour shortages um, in large parts of the country, I think at a local level is proving really, really difficult. Um, also at a local level, I think what um, areas are worrying about a lot is, is actually what's happening in the housing market. Um, house prices are projected to decline um, fairly substantially over the next year or so. Um, we're seeing costs escalating and house building at the same time uh, is slowing. And for, for many places, that combination, I think, is really problematic. Um, and it, it's presenting a, a really difficult um, set of circumstances that areas will need to navigate. Against that backdrop, what do you think might be the key policy responses from UK government or wider policy developments over the next 12 months in this space? Well, I guess my focus in this conversation is at the local level. And thinking about it, I think um, there's probably three main strands that areas will need to worry about. First of all, um, I think the next year or so we'll see um, further major developments in respect of the commitment to net zero and you know every year that goes past is a year less in which the nation has to, to meet its national commitments. But for local areas it's, it's important to recognise that many local authorities have set commitments in respect of net zero that are, that are at least a decade earlier than those set nationally. And this is starting to be not very far away. And I do think um, the response to that is going to have to be quite urgent. Um, that's really difficult, I think, in the context of recession as well. But that whole um, mix of things is something that areas will need to think through. A second area that I think will matter a lot, um, and this is really looking across different policy statements, including... Um, some of the work that the Labour Party has come up with over recent months um, is, I think, the importance of clusters growing again. Um, in the last podcast, we talked a lot about the relationship between innovation and place and the fact that these two agendas had largely collided. Um, 
I think this links into some of what Johnny was saying earlier on, the role of catapults, but that whole set of networks is going to matter hugely locally. The third one um, is the really big one, I guess, which is this whole thing on devolution. Um, it's a debate that's gaining huge amounts of momentum um, from all parts of the political spectrum. Um, and I think it has got some way to run. I suspect there'll be more announcements linked to it of different forms. We had the levelling up fund round two announcement last week, which didn't meet with universal um, enthusiasm, I guess. And I suspect that in turn might have some consequences. Could there be more county deals? Possibly wider devolution deals? Maybe. And then what about the big question, some of this, which I suspect is getting towards fiscal devolution. I don't know over the next year, but um, I suspect there'll be much said and written about it. Finally, Christine, what are the implications for local actors operating in this quite challenging and evolving context? The theme of this whole podcast, which has been essentially navigating a policy landscape against the backdrop of recession, um, is really writ large at local levels. It just becomes more risky, I think. Um, I think in the long term, um, the priorities are quite clear, really. Um, the basics, the fundamentals of skills, labour force, your innovation assets, your business stock, um, premises, um, early stage finance, all those sorts of things are not going to change in the medium to long term. Um, the question is, though, what that means in the short term and how local areas best navigate it. And I think the short answer to that is actually thinking quite hard around, possibly around scenarios for the future, recognising I think that the next year or two will be, I think, quite challenging, um, but keeping eyes very much on that medium-term horizon uh, and having confidence to, to see some of that through. Thanks, Christine. Drawing together the insights from across the discussions on what we should be looking out for in economic and social development in 2023, the point Christine made towards the end of our discussion about a common theme of the need to navigate a changing policy landscape against the backdrop of possible recession over the next 12 months comes across very strongly. There is significant uncertainty, possible recession, and the need for those involved in economic and social development, both locally and nationally, to respond to a range of in recent times at least, quite novel and pronounced challenges, including rising inflation, impacting on individuals, businesses and public services, and extended and widespread industrial action. And this outlook for 2023, of course, follows recent years where we were responding to the shock of the pandemic and in the UK adjusting to the post-Brexit landscape. So whilst we might have hoped that 2023 would be getting back to some sort of business as usual in economic and social development, in practice we might expect the next 12 months to be anything but. Crucially, alongside the short-term issues, long-term challenges also remain in relation to raising productivity, addressing regional imbalances in economic performance and life chances, delivering against net zero ambitions and improving the quality of public services. Thanks to Graham, Lauren, Jonathan and Christine. And thank you to you for listening to Insight for Impact. You've been listening to Insight for Impact, the podcast from SQW. To learn more about SQW, our people and our latest thinking, please visit our website at sqw.co.uk. And if you have any further feedback or thoughts on the podcast or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, please get in touch with us 
via LinkedIn and Twitter using the handle at SQW.